Today we have a real treat uh, because uh, Dr Stuart Eves will be talking to us today about the central role of space domain awareness in future military conflicts. Brief word about him. In 2018, um, perhaps dissatisfied with the way the world is, um, Stuart decided to found his own space consultancy company, which is SJE Space Limited. Um, there you are, that's the advert done. So Thank you. I've honoured you. <laughs> After spending 16 years with the uh, Ministry of Defence here in the UK, 14 years with, let me get the title right, Surrey Satellite Technology Limited, SSTL. Um, he's worked in a variety of uh, capacities, but um, the most important uh, are that he has been involved in certain space missions, including TopSat, uh, which set the satellite world record for resolution per mass when it was launched in 2005. Um, which is featured in Space Gallery at Science Museum in London. Uh, his recent book, Space Traffic Control, uh, describes the measures needed uh, to maintain the space environment and protect satellites from both natural hazards and, crucially for our discussion today, man-made threats. He serves on the advisory panel for the ESA Space Safety Programme. He's a founder of Genesis, Network on Sustainability in Space. He's been involved in a diverse range of media activities, which we've been talking about, and all aspects of space including most recently this SSA Warfare, which you're going to hear about today, and has previously been a recipient of the Arthur C. Clarke Award for Space Education and Outreach. Arthur C. Clarke <laughs> was at a college um, that I taught at for 10 years. We didn't really talk about that at lunch, but uh, he's a great, um, was a great friend. Uh, Stuart has an MSc in Astrophysics and a PhD in Satellite Constellation Design, and has been a fellow of both the Royal Astronomical Society and the British Interplanetary Society for more than 25 years. Stuart, thank you very, very much indeed for coming to talk to us about space situation awareness. Thank you very much indeed, Rob. Uh, good afternoon, everybody. Um, so I was uh, invited to uh, put together a paper uh, on this topic for um, uh, the Freeman Institute, which is a spin-off from uh, King's College in London. And uh, I received quite a number of invitations as a result, one of which was uh, from Rob to come and talk to you this afternoon. Um, so the phrase space situation awareness is a term that's been around for quite a while. It's basically how do we figure out what's going on in Earth orbit. Uh, and it refers particularly to the man-made stuff that's up there. The US have recently started using a phrase space domain awareness, which I think is intended to be slightly broader in that it's intended to include the natural space environment, i.e. stuff that the sun is doing, etc. I'm going to stick to space situation awareness largely today because I'm going to be talking about the man-made stuff that's going on up there, the deliberate and military uh, things that are happening in space. And particularly I'm going to um, talk to the issue of how space is being militarised and things are starting to change in space. Satellites are now uh, potentially going to de need design features that um, more conventional weapon systems like aircraft and, and ships uh, and land vehicles have had for a long time. Spacecraft historically haven't been equipped with those things, but I hope to convince you this afternoon that they really need to be. So I wanted to start with an analogy. So we can have a debate about the first bullet about exactly when the air domain became pretty central to winning wars. Um, but I think after the Second World War, uh, it became generally acknowledged that uh, aircraft were really important, air, air superiority was a thing. Um, during the war, um, aircraft were targeted with relatively unsophisticated weapon systems like flak, and they dropped chaff 
in order to try and confuse the radars that were trying to get a lock on them. Uh, over time, people developed surface-to-air and air-to-air missiles, became a lot better at killing aircraft, and as a result, aircraft started to develop fairly sophisticated decoy systems. They went for stealth technology, they went for radar-absorbing materials, they developed things like emissions control, so they'd turn off their radios when they go into conflict situations, so they're not providing a signature for the enemy to use against them. And my analogy is that I think all of these things are increasingly true for the space domain. So uh, since the time of probably the first Gulf War, in about 1990 or thereabouts, um, satellites have become pretty central to war winning. Uh, they, satellites have definitely become the targets of increasingly sophisticated um, weapon systems. Uh, and we have seen over the weekend, the Russians have tested an, an anti-satellite weapon and blown up one of their old defunct satellites in low Earth orbit. But we've seen that sort of activity from the US, from China, and from India. So there's at least four nations that have uh, kinetic anti-satellite weapons. And there are a bunch of other, perhaps quite not quite as catastrophic threats out there. Um, you know, signals jamming, um, the use of lasers to dazzle sensors, etc. All of these things now exist. And so the two analogies for the first two bullets exist for space. And my argument is that uh, satellites now need to start doing the sort of things that um, have been true in the air domain uh, to protect themselves against those increasing threats. <coughs> so I thought. Um, I would include a picture here of a satellite employing um, SSA warfare techniques to try and avoid being seen. If you can't see the satellite, that proves it's working then, doesn't it? Um, obviously, I've slightly cheated here. I've just put a picture of a space field up, but this is the sort of scenario that we are actually going to find ourselves faced with because, as I'll explain in a minute, we're actually not all that great at space situation awareness at the moment. And if satellites start trying to hide from us, it's going to get a lot, lot worse. So I've coined the term for a space situation awareness warfare. Um, and it's an issue for people like me because um, I've spent, as Rob explained in the introduction, quite a bit of my time uh, over the last few years trying to make space a safer place. There is an awful lot of debris up there, some of which has been created by deliberate anti-satellite weapon uh, engagements, uh, quite a lot of which has been just created by random collisions between pieces of debris. Um, so space is a congested place already, and satellite designers are already having to think quite hard about which orbits they use. So if we get into a situation where satellites are deliberately trying to make the job of tracking much harder, we're going to have a lot of sort of ghost objects up there that are whizzing around but we can't see and that's going to make it much much harder to achieve what i refer to as space traffic control you may also see the phrase space traffic management coming out of the united states my uh, there are different uh, definitions available for those terms my definitions are the following that space traffic management is what's happening largely at the moment. It's a series of gentlemen's agreements between various nation states and various commercial operators uh, to try and play nice and keep out of each other's way. 
uh, but it's not legally binding and there are no legal consequences if you don't follow those agreements. Space Traffic Control, which was the title of my book, is where I think the lawyers get involved and there are actually internationally binding regulations about what you do in space um, and there are legal consequences if you don't follow them. So I don't know if you've come across the phrase navigation warfare. Uh, I first encountered it in the mid-1990s. There are, in US doctrine at least, three principles of navigation warfare. Uh, you want to be able to continue to navigate yourself. You want to deny the ability uh, to use uh, precision navigation and timing to the opposition. And because there is so much um, dependence upon those signals and services from satellites, the other aim of navigation warfare is to try and avoid um, causing uh, considerable disruption to things like financial markets and to aircraft navigation and to ship navigation uh, by uh, modifying the navigation services outside a particular theatre of operation. So the idea is to try and limit whatever you do in the navigation warfare sphere to the particular area of a conflict. Um, not obviously easy to do, um, but you can see that the sort of general idea of, say, switching off uh, certain signals uh, that you think the enemy might be exploiting, uh, if you were to switch them off in a permanent fashion, would potentially influence a lot of people outside the theatre of operations as the satellites orbit the Earth. So that's not an acceptable solution. And I've adopted a similar set of principles for space situation awareness warfare. You want to maintain a good knowledge of what's going on in the space environment yourself. You potentially want to degrade your adversary's understanding of what's going on up there, especially when you're trying to do things. And because there are all these dependencies on space systems, uh, you want to try and do things that aren't going to um, affect um, all the other uses of space in the civil and commercial domains. So how do we find out what is going on up there at the moment? Well, uh, we have le uh, uh, large um, radar facilities that are generally used to track objects that are in what I'm going to refer to as low Earth orbit. So if you haven't come across the definition before, low Earth orbit is typically from about 500 kilometers, which is roughly the altitude at which the atmosphere is thin enough to maintain a, a permanently stable orbit, up to a little over 1,000 kilometers. There's then a region uh, where the Valanum radiation belts dominate, where you don't find too many satellites. Uh, there is then medium Earth orbit, which is about three Earth radii away. That's where you'll find most of the navigation satellites. And then uh, geostationary orbit, probably abbreviated in here as GEO, um, is uh, uh, about six Earth radii away from the planet. Uh, and that's where you'll find a lot of the communications and some of the other military satellites. So um, the low Earth orbit stuff tracked by radars because the ranges are not enormous and you can get a decent radar return. <coughs> For higher orbit stuff, the medium Earth orbit satellites and the geostationary satellites, typically the tracking is done optically, um, quite a lot with passive um, optical telescopes, uh, a few infrared ones, not so many of those, and just occasionally um, laser ranging facilities, um, like this is the one at Hurstmonceau down in Sussex, um, uh, where you actually transmit a laser beam and measure the time of flight of your laser pulse in order to uh, measure a range to a satellite and uh, generate an orbit for it. 
Um, those two techniques are the ones that generally contribute to the large catalogue that the US maintains um, of all the stuff in Earth orbit and depending on uh, when you ask the question and who exactly you ask you'll get a figure somewhere in the 20 odd thousand objects in that catalogue at the moment. There is also passive RF um, satellites uh, sometimes deliberately transmit beacons to enable them to be tracked but uh, they transmit state of health information called telemetry and they also uh, transmit the data that they collect. If they're a surveillance satellite, for example, they'll transmit the images down as radio signals. Um, so satellites that are active have an RF signature as well, which can be exploited. Uh, typically that ends up at a higher level of classification. Uh, and so the data collected by these sorts of sensors, most of the time until very recently, has stayed within the intelligence communities. There are now some commercial companies that are starting to uh, track um, satellites using their RF signatures and actually start to contribute to um, the, uh, the overall catalogue. And if you're looking for a change in the character of war, uh, one of the changes that you might see is some of the functions that have historically been done by large governmental facilities. This is the US-sponsored radar called Farlingdales on the North Yorkshire Moors. Um, this is the sort of capability um, that used to be governmental but is increasingly now being done in the commercial sector. So um, we're seeing a sort of transition um, in that sense. Um, I don't, you'll be ready to know, I don't plan to talk about this slide in detail, but what I thought I ought to do is just emphasize the fact uh, that I mentioned just now. We're not all that great at tracking the stuff that's up there at the moment. Uh, in particular, our ability uh, to track stuff at the moment is typically about 10 centimeter sized objects. And uh, uh, unfortunately, that's not good enough. You might think 10 centimeters is quite small, but even something the size of a sugar cube traveling at seven and a half kilometers a second, which is the velocity that you're doing in low Earth orbit, carries the equivalent energy of a hand grenade. And if you can sort of mentally picture putting a hand grenade beside a satellite and detonating it, you can see it wouldn't be a good day for the satellite. So unfortunately, we need to improve in terms of the, uh, the tracking size that we can get down to. At the moment, we're reliant on models. And uh, the models at the moment are extremely uncertain. If you ask NASA how many objects one centimeter and bigger are in Earth orbit, they will tell you the answer is about 500,000, according to their model. If you ask the European Space Agency the same question, the answer they'll give you is 900,000, so nearly a factor of two larger. Um, it demonstrates how much difference there is between the different models, and at the moment, we don't know which of those models is more accurate. Even when we get to the point of being able to track the small stuff, our current catalogues are not well designed for um, handling literally hundreds of thousands of objects. Um, whichever model's right, we're gonna end up with a very big catalog. And the problem that we then have is trying to project conjunctions between those objects and trying to prevent collisions. And when you're um, trying to do the statistics, uh, the statistics depend on the number of objects in orbit squared. Uh, so you can see that as the number goes up, the problem becomes computationally very intensive. And the final point, which I'll return to a bit later, is that um, we don't have a very synoptic system. Um, the sensors that we rely on are largely ones that were put there in the time of the Cold War. They were designed to look at Russian ballistic missiles coming over the poles. 
as their primary function, so things like filing dells, it's not a space tracking radar, it is a ballistic missile warning radar. And the idea is that it will tell us if the Russians fire something in our direction. That's its main task. And its ability to sort of be used as a space surveillance sensor is only incidental. And I'll explain how that works a little later. Um, but, you know, there are, as you can see, a, a number of other things that mean we're not very good at space situation awareness at the moment. And as I say, I think it's going to get worse. So, how do you actually implement space situation awareness warfare? Well, there's various things that you might do to try and modify the satellite signatures. So, make it harder for the late, uh, radars and telescopes to actually see you. You may modify the way that you operate the satellite so that you take your adversary by surprise. Your satellite is perhaps not where they expected or not demonstrating the signature that they expected. <coughs> Um, and then, in theory, and this is based on the sort of things that happen in the air domain, um, you could potentially try to do active things to actually counter the adversary space surveillance sensors. So you might think that sounds a little on the extreme side, but if you think about the air domain, if you were to come up with a design for a modern fast jet, for example, for the military, and you didn't have radar warning receivers, and some sort of countermeasure that depended on detecting uh, a hostile radar illuminating and potentially firing a missile back to take out the radar, um, you would be laughed at because they are standard fits on military aircraft these days and conceivably satellites may start to rely on such technologies uh, in the future. So let's talk a little bit about signature modification. So uh, this is allegedly an illustration of a thing called MISTI, which the US launched some years ago. Um, in theory, what it's supposed to be doing is acting as a, as a sort of shield for the rest of the satellite here. Uh, this bit points down towards the Earth and, in theory, makes it very hard for radars to track. So, um, well, yeah, okay, you may be able to do that. You'll have to get the design of this shield, RF shield, correct because um, potentially the satellite has to do something useful to be worth putting in orbit. It then has to transmit the data that it's collecting down to the Earth. So at least somewhere in the RF spectrum there must be a window for the satellite to actually talk to the Earth. Uh, potentially it's got to have sensors in there that can see that through that shield, for example, if it was trying to take pictures, for example, um, at optical wavelengths, potentially something might have to get through. Um, so it's quite hard to work out how shields like this would actually work out very well in practice. You might think, well, you know, space is black, why don't we just paint the satellites black? Uh, the answer to that is a sort of Cinderella subject for satellites designers, which is that thermal control is really Im important to a satellite. You put a satellite in Earth orbit, it's in the full glare of the sun with no intervening atmosphere. So the external surfaces of a satellite, when it's in the sunshine, will get to over 100 degrees Celsius. When it goes into the Earth's shadow in low Earth orbit, it'll start to cool down. It may have cooled down to perhaps minus 20 before it, just before it comes out of the Earth's shadow. So a large temperature change in a relatively short period of time. A satellite in low Earth orbit takes perhaps 90 or 100 minutes, so just over an hour and a half to go around the planet. 
Um, so in about half that orbit time, maybe 30 to 40 minutes, uh, you're seeing over 100 degrees of temperature change. But importantly, at the end of that time, at minus 20 degrees Celsius, for example, you are still a long, long way above the thermal background of space, which is at 3 Kelvin, um, and you're at 350-odd. Um, so I can remember having a conversation with uh, a guy who designed um, uh, uh, infrared sensors for, for air weapons. And uh, he said, I really wish I had your problem, Stuart. He said, um, you know, my signal to noise is, you know, trying to detect the subtle differences between an aircraft temperature and the background temperature of the sky. And there are only a few degrees difference sometimes, whereas, you know, you've got hundreds of degrees of temperature difference. So um, we could try painting it black, but the satellites will overheat, um, and we need to maintain that thermal signature um, because we need to keep the satellites typically at around room temperature for the electronics to work properly. So there's quite a lot of insulation that has to go on um, between the external surfaces and the interior electronics so that you don't cycle them through that 100 plus degrees uh, every 90 minutes. And, uh, and thermal control and being dark in the infrared is really tricky. Um, and as I mentioned just now, um, it's really difficult sometimes to imagine how you would actually operate the satellite if it had some sort of, um, sort of stealth technology stuck on the front like this. Um, because um, the, the stealth technology has to be between the satellite and the ground and that's generally the satellite is looking to do something down to the ground. I mean there are you know satellites that have inter-satellite links and talk to other satellites but in general the target of interest is on the ground so you've got to be trying to put your stealth in between you and the stuff that you're actually trying to observe and it gets in the way. So perhaps you could try and modify your RF signature to make the uh, targets harder to see. So um, there are a variety of ways that you might try and do that. Um, as you go up in frequency, typically the beam width of communication signals comes down. So we've seen an evolution up in frequency. We're now at um, typically tens of gigahertz for the communications frequencies we use and the beam widths are much more narrow. Uh, and what we've seen as a result uh, is that satellites, uh, especially in geostationary orbit, but also elsewhere, are starting to get uncomfortably close to other satellites. Um, the US, China, and Russia all have um, surveillance assets in geostationary orbit that are getting uncomfortably close to other people's satellites. And the principal reason is to get close enough that they're actually in the beams of these uh, relatively narrow high frequency signals. You can do other clever things with your RF signals. You can basically apply a spreading code and actually spread your uh, information across the entire bandwidth that the satellite can transmit and potentially sit below the noise floor. And if the receiver knows the code that they've, you've used, you can invert that process and recover the signal. Uh, potentially that makes you harder to see in the RF sense. Um, rather than just going up and down from the satellite, you might have signals that come up to the satellite and then get relayed across to another satellite. Um, mention of Arthur C. Clarke just now, 
Um, this is from the original paper that he wrote, pub, um, sort of popularising the idea of geostationary satellites in 1945. And, you know, he clearly was thinking a long way ahead. He's not just thinking about the signals going up and down to the satellites. He's got this large equilateral triangle where the satellites are talking to each other. And you can do that to try and make your signals harder for your adversary to spot. Um, and you could get out of the RF domain altogether and start using laser inter-satellite links, and that's also starting to happen. So this is uh, the European Data Relay Satellite here. There are various subscriber satellites in low-Earth orbit that uh, transmit uh, information up on laser links. Um, and obviously a laser beam is very collimated, so uh, it's very difficult for an adversary to actually intercept and exploit your communications if you're using lasers. Satellites are actually getting harder to see almost organically, and that's uh, because the improvements in electronics technology uh, and optics has led to um, satellite sizes decreasing. So typically, high-resolution surveillance nearly always involved multimeter class uh, spacecraft that were very large and hence very easy to spot. Um, satellites are getting smaller and smaller. Some of the um, ones on the left-hand side there are admittedly not delivering quite the same quality of imagery, um, but there are an awful lot of them, so they are proliferating, and that's another way of achieving resilience, uh, but they are certainly getting much smaller. So um, the satellites are getting um, closer to the limit uh, that we can reliably detect. So these uh, sort of so-called CubeSats, um, a weight of five uh, kilograms corresponds to typically 10 centimeters by 10 centimeters by maybe 30 centimeters would be a 3U CubeSat. So something about the size of a shoebox and it's uh, generating sort of militarily relevant data at three to five meters spatial resolution. And you know the company that are launching these things called Planet have launched over 150 of them now. <coughs> so one of the things that you might choose to do is the sort of technologies that have been implied um, in the air domain uh, historically. I mentioned MCON earlier, so basically um, when you think your satellite might be in view of an enemy listening post, you might choose to turn off its transmissions and just transmit data down uh, when you think you're in a more safe location in space. Um, and uh, you might modify your frequencies. Um, uh, war modes are a standard thing uh, in military communications uh, already. Various different systems have the ability in a time of crisis to switch to a new frequency. Uh, potentially we could do that with satellites. There is a sort of limitation here in the sense that um, there are international agreements managed by the International Telecommunications Union that try to stop interference between satellites. So the idea is that before you launch your satellite, you register the frequencies that it will transmit, and you basically tell the world what you're going to be doing. And if nobody objects, then you're able to launch your satellite and use those frequencies, hopefully without interference uh, to anybody else. Um, if you were deliberately to um, bypass that system to create war modes that, you know, where you had frequencies on the satellite that you hadn't told anybody about, uh, in theory, you can do that technically. In practice, what that might result in is some level of interference if you haven't coordinated your frequencies in advance. 
uh, you could try using novel orbits. Um, one of the uh, challenges that we have, as I mentioned earlier, is that all the major radars are well up in the northern hemisphere to see the Rossian ballistic missiles. All of these other tracking sites down close to the equator are largely telescopes that are used to track the high orbit satellites. So there have been occasions, uh, including a launch that came out of Japan back in uh, 1995, uh, which was never tracked. It went round the Earth two and a half times. It was a bit of a launch failure. Um, the uh, rocket underperformed, uh, but the people of Ghana got a rather a surprise when the satellite um, re-entered over their country. Um, but this particular thing was never in the catalogues. It was never tracked. It was never added to the US database because they never saw it because it was in too low an orbit and too low an in inclination to the equator. You can deliberately manoeuvre the satellite. Um, this is a slight exaggeration. Hopefully you don't apply sufficient force to bend your solar panels. Um, but uh, uh, obviously using propellant is... Uh, something that you would only do in extremists because um, propellant is a, a life-limiting factor for a satellite. You've only got a certain size fuel tank, so you could do this, but you'll shorten the lifetime of your satellite if you keep making random maneuvers. You could get some orbit modification kind of for free uh, if you operate in a very low Earth orbit. So the space station is at about this altitude. There are very few things below it, and the reason being that there's quite a lot of drag at those altitudes, and um, potentially you, you will you know, have to keep boosting your satellite orbit in order to overcome the drag. But the drag is temporally variant because the activity of the sun affects the drag. So basically it's like space weather. Um, so if you work in a very low orbit, you're continually needing to adjust your own orbit, but that will make it more difficult for an adversary to know exactly where you're going to be in space. Uh, you can use the stuff that's up there. Uh, you could um, just sort of stay adjacent to your the rocket body that's placed you uh, in orbit. Uh, and uh, I think the US referred to this as snuggling. I think that sounds a lot cosier than it actually is. Um, but, uh, you know, even if you decided to um, avoid the debris problem and get rid of your own rocket body, there are plenty of other large rocket bodies left up there by the Russians, uh, and others uh, back in the day, and even other satellites that you could get up close and personal to. And that changes the calculus for an aggressor, because now if they want to attack your satellite, potentially they could end up engaging the other object that you're adjacent to. Um, this actually kind of happened to the UK. Uh, the satellite in the centre here is the UK's Skynet 5A satellite. It was moved to a location on the geostationary arc at 95 East, which you can imagine is uh, sort of within view of China. China decided to send um, its uh, surveillance satellite, Xinjuan 17, to have a look at us and uh, got uncomfortably close to our satellite. Interestingly, however, um, the US were shadowing Xinjiang 17 with their own geostationary space situation awareness program, GSAP. So we actually ended up with two near neighbors rather than just one. Um, this is the reality of stuff in geostationary orbit at the moment. It's getting congested and it's uncoordinated because the people operating those three satellites are not talking to one another. So they're not communicating what orbit changes they're making and the possibility for a collision is increasing. Um, 
Uh, you'll probably have come across the US uh, research entity DARPA. Um, they're actually looking to take this sort of concept uh, even to the constellation level. So uh, the satellites in white are members of the OneWeb constellation and DARPA's idea was to buy a whole load of satellites that looked um, extremely <coughs> like the OneWeb satellites, they're the ones in green, and actually use them for military purposes and kind of hide the military um, element in this constellation amongst the civil elements. Um, whether that would actually work with a sophisticated adversary, I'm not sure, because I think you might notice a difference in the transmissions. You could, uh, in extremis, uh, do the sorts of things that aircraft do and deploy active decoys. Um, it's an expensive way to go. Um, it's also quite difficult to maintain a decoy that you've deployed because, especially in low Earth orbit, the drag on the satellites would be different because they would have a different area to mass ratio and they would tend to drift apart. So it might be a temporary solution to a problem, uh, but it might actually confuse your adversary for a little while uh, and that might be all you need. Uh, you could play dead. It works for certain lizards and other um, <laughs> creatures. Um, a satellite that appears to be tumbling and is not transmitting signals uh, might be assumed to have failed um, and uh, then it might take your adversary by surprise if it suddenly stabilized and started performing a mission again. Um, it's obviously going to cost you in playing dead, you're probably not performing a useful mission while you're playing dead because the satellite's not pointing in the right direction. Uh, but maybe a temporary outage is better than a permanent one. You could try and overwhelm the tracking system. So this is where I need to explain how the, uh, the ballistic missile defense radars work. They obviously have enough range to see all of the satellites in low Earth orbit. The apogee of a ballistic missile trajectory is typically on the order of 4,000 kilometers, which is above where most of the low Earth orbit satellites are. So basically, if they just put up a, a radar fence, they will see a lot of satellites flying through it. And clearly, they don't want to be issuing warnings about known objects in space. They want to be issuing warnings about new ballistic missiles. So they have to have a catalog and know where to expect to see things so that they can say, right, yes, OK, something's just flown, flown through our fence. We know about that. It's this particular object. We were expecting it at that particular time. Move on. Okay, so the things that get them excited is what they call uncorrelated targets, where something comes through their radar fence and it's not in their catalogue. At that point, they start to think about issuing warnings. They try and calculate an orbit. Um, most of the time, fortunately, these things are in Earth orbit and are not, coming, are not ballistic missiles headed our way. Um, but they have to expend extra radar resource to achieve that. Now. If a satellite manoeuvres, obviously it doesn't appear um, coming through their radar fence at the expected time. It therefore becomes an uncorrelated target. If an adversary was to manoeuvre all of their satellites, then potentially in a given day you would have a lot of satellites coming through at unexpected times. And it takes a while to um, untangle, um, you know, sort of and, and reacquire and um, gain confidence that you have got custody of the right objects that you've actually um, you know sort of assigned a new orbit to this thing that's maneuvered that's not a trivial process we discovered quite how bad it was back in 1989 when the Sun 
um, created a major event that pumped up the Earth's atmosphere quite significantly. Over, almost overnight, that increased the drag on lots of satellites by quite a significant amount, which meant that lots and lots of the objects that were in the catalogue appeared at the wrong time, with the result that nearly, you know, a large proportion of the catalogue became uncorrelated targets simultaneously. And it, and, uh, you know, allegedly it took them nearly a year to untangle the mess. Um, so, simultaneous manoeuvre potentially helps. Another issue that we've found with the launches that are taking place at the moment where they're putting up sometimes over 100 satellites on a single rocket. They're all very small satellites, but uh, India launched over 100, um, I think, last year on a single rocket. Is It's really, really hard when all of those sub-payloads get deployed to work out which is which. So if an adversary did a surge launch and put a whole load of extra stuff into orbit, you're back into this loads of uncorrelated targets problem. The timing of these sorts of events could have an effect. Um, so if you did actually choose to do lots of maneuvers or lots of launches at a time of high solar activity, you can almost guarantee that people would get very confused because they'd have a lot of natural uncorrelated targets as well as all the new stuff that you've chosen to give them as a problem. Uh, the cyber threat potentially applies here because we have this catalogue that I was talking about. It gets passed around the world. Um, in theory, if somebody could get access to that database, they could erase uh, or move <coughs> things in it which would uh, potentially complicate matters. So the integrity of that database is an important thing to preserve. There is the possibility for deception techniques. Um, you know, if you've read any of this sort of history of the Second World War, it's quite astonishing how much effort was put into uh, deception techniques. You could do that in the space domain. Um, the US had just invested uh, in a large new radar facility on an island called Kwajalein in the Pacific it allegedly will get down to these one to two centimetre sized objects I was talking about. At the moment, frankly, very few other people are able to contradict the US if they say we can see a bunch of objects. So imagine you're the operator of a satellite that the US might consider um, hostile and you're suddenly told by US Space Command that there's a cloud of debris objects heading towards your satellite. Do you believe the Americans and move your satellite out of the way, potentially taking it offline for a while? Or do you ride it out and say the Americans are lying to me and they're just telling me there's this ghost debris that's not really coming towards my satellite? Um, so um, that's one way you could do some quite creative accounting. Um, another thing that is interesting is that the US don't publish the orbital elements uh, for their own satellites. They think that that creates a degree of protection. Uh, I would refer you to this website called Heavens Above, which is where all the amateurs with their binoculars go, uh, and they find it a particular challenge just because the US don't announce their orbits. Uh, all the amateurs concentrate on the US satellites and put the orbital elements of the satellites on this website. The US treats the orbits of their satellites as not only top secret, but also no foreign nationals. You know, so they don't actually advertise their orbits to you know, even friendly nations like the UK. Um, but you can find their orbits on, on a website. It's not entirely logical. But anyway, um, if the US were to choose to take a slightly different approach, they could 
um, add one of their real satellites to what they might claim in the catalogue was a debris object. Might not be a debris object, might be a real satellite. Uh, you could um, get into the sort of game that happens in the air domain where you see a radar signal coming up and you take measures to actually either um, transmit at uh, the radar frequency to confuse the sensor that's trying to track you. Uh, there are some really subtle techniques now where if you process the incoming radar signal sufficiently fast, you can transmit back a return that either appears to move your satellite or actually transmit kind of counseling waves that will actually you know, sort of disguise your signal altogether. So these are techniques that are happening in the air domain, we just haven't applied them to satellites yet. And uh, I promised Rob over lunch that I would talk about this, uh, which is uh, artificial ionospheric modification. So uh, there are at least a couple of facilities around the world. There's one in Alaska, I think, uh, that belongs to the US, obviously, and one in Russia, where they're transmitting relatively low frequency radio waves into the atmosphere and actually um, coupling that energy into the ionosphere and affecting the propagation uh, characteristics of the ionosphere. Um, if you're then trying to do surveillance of satellites through the ionosphere, conceivably um, your radars um, uh, will get you know, really dodgy results and you'll get very inaccurate orbits uh, if the ionosphere is not behaving in the way that you expect it to. Um, a lot of satellites in low Earth orbit are now uh, exploiting uh, GPS signals in the way that our mobile phones do to help us uh, navigate. Satellites do that too. Um, the problem is that there are certain regions in the world, uh, this one's in, uh, in Syria, where there are very large uh, sort of transmission sites that uh, are putting up an awful lot of GPS interference with the idea of compromising the operation of military precision guided munitions amongst other things. Um, Unfortunately, these transmitters are so strong that they are actually interfering with the receivers on the low Earth orbit satellites. If you think about it, a low Earth orbit satellite may be only 500 kilometers away from that jammer, whereas the navigation satellite that it's trying to listen to <coughs> is several thousand kilometers away. Um, so basically, the ground-based signal over overwhelms the space-based one. Now, that's generally a problem but it's a very specific problem if you happen to be, say, the Starlink constellation that Elon Musk is launching, where those satellites are dependent on uh, their GPS receivers to know where they are in space so that they can take evasion maneuvers when they get a conjunction warning, i.e. when the Starlink constellation is told that there's something potentially um, on a collision course with them, they've got an automated system that will maneuver the satellites out of the way, which sounds great, but it only works if the satellite knows where it is. As soon as the satellite doesn't know where it is, you're imperiling the space environment. So a page of conclusions to finish. I hope I've convinced you that you know we're not all that great at SSA already, but it's going to almost certainly get harder as people start to do some of the techniques that <coughs> I've talked about against us. I think it's pretty much inevitable. Um, we're starting to see some of those effects already. And um, my ultimate conclusion is we need to get a lot better at space situation awareness. We need to invest 
in more sensors, with more capabilities in more places around the globe. You know, having you know in almost an entire half orbit in the southern hemisphere where we're not tracking stuff at all is really not helping much. Uh, so we need to get a lot better. At that point, I'll stop. Um, I don't know how long you can stay. I don't know how long we have for questions, but I'm very happy to take any. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you.